Hello and welcome to the Leaner Stronger podcast. Today I'm answering many questions that I received in my 21 day challenge. So I'm just going to get straight into it with the first question and I hope you enjoy. The first question is, um, so Jasmine has asked, what can I eat that gives me the fuel and makes me feel more full to stop reaching for bad snacks in between eating main meals, so breakfast, lunch and dinner? So <clears throat> there's a few things we can look at when it comes to this. So obviously we want to kind of think about the whole good and bad thing. What are we perceiving as good or bad snacks, for example? Now I'm going to be on the presumption that you're looking or thinking about kind of sweets and chocolate bars and things like that, where because they're higher in calories, they're not very filling, they're they're perceived as bad but if we move away from that side of things um, what we could be looking at there's different aspects if you want a snack in between your three meals we could be looking for things that are potentially higher in protein so little yogurts maybe even protein bars if there's something that you want just things you could even go for just fruit just low calorie snacks as well it doesn't necessarily have to be high in protein but things that are maybe slightly lower in calories like your fruits fibrous fruits and things like that because you know they'll take a bit of time to digest they're actually relatively filling that could help the other thing we could look at here is actually what your main meals look like so breakfast lunch and dinner could we could you adapt it so that breakfast is a different option but is one that is slightly more filling for you. It's hard to suggest what, because I don't know what you, you like and dislike, but play around with some options. Maybe you could have like a, a bowl of yogurt and fruit for breakfast instead. Maybe that's more filling than what you already have. With lunches and dinners more so, could you have more vegetables, more protein source within those meals? That could always be a good option. So actually, if we make your three main meals more filling, then actually we may not feel the desire to, to snack as much in between the meals. If you're trying to keep to a calorie deficit, for example, and you're trying to keep your meals really, really small as well in terms of calories, for example, and generally small on the plate, maybe because they're, sm they're too small for you personally, you might be getting hungry. So actually what you could do is actually plan to split your calories across those three meals so that actually each meal gets a bit bigger. So maybe lunch, uh, breakfast gets slightly bigger, lunch and dinner get bigger in proportion to, to breakfast if that's how you like to eat. That's, that's quite typical. And actually what that might do by having more calories in those meals, it might be more substantial for you so that you don't get hungry in between them. It's something to try. It's going to be very much trial and error. But I think that those are good ways in terms of actually manipulating the nutrition to help, potentially help that. The other thing you could do when it comes to the snacks is actually hit that pause button and go, what do I, do I actually want this snack? What am I hungry for? And essentially, you know, you could be bored. If you're just bored and you need a break, then go off and have a break and come back and then if you still want the snack, obviously have it. But if you then realise that you were just bored, then you can say no to the snack that you were planning on having and that will kind of save you from having the snack that you might not necessarily want. 
So that's an idea as well, maybe just pause and things like that. So there's some ideas there for you, Jazz. Debbie has asked, she'd like to know what exercises she could work on that are good for certain areas of the body, i.e. thighs and tummy. There's a couple of lines of thoughts here. In when it comes to losing body fat, we can't specifically choose where it comes off of. So for example, if you wanted to have slimmer legs, for example, you can't just do loads of leg exercises, the body fat will kind of come off. Where your body fat comes off of is very much determined kind of by genetics. And by being in your calorie deficit, the body fat will, will go from wherever the body deems appropriate first. And this can be very individual again. You know, you'll see some people where they lose it off their face first. Some people lose it off their arms. Some people lose it off their legs. Some people don't lose it from those places until later on in their journey. So I wouldn't get too roped up on doing specific things for specific areas to lose body fat. But what we can do by doing the resistance training of all of the muscles, for example, we can improve their kind of chance of tone is probably the best way to describe it. So by building the muscle in these areas, as we reduce the body fat, you'll probably get that feeling of them being toned in that area. Because what can happen is sometimes if people lose weight without doing this kind of muscle building training, for example, uh, I know we chatted the other day about the bingo wings in the workshop. Like if you don't do the arm training of the, of the tricep underneath, as you continue to lose body fat, because you haven't built the muscle tone underneath, there's nothing there to kind of, well, not that there's not nothing there, but there's not as much there to keep it as firm as maybe if you were doing the training. So training the legs, for example, would be good to kind of firm up the thighs. Um, and again, training the tummy muscles, you know, your abdominals will be a good idea to have them there to be strong, more so for function than than necessarily the aesthetic side of things. Because like I say, the body fat comes off wherever the body will allow it to come off of. Focus on the nutrition for the body fat aspect. Focus on the training to get stronger and, and kind of building a bit of tone there. And then the two together come together quite nicely over time. Uh, Lauren has said, time is a major struggle for me in both normal busy life uh, with work and teaching, I struggle to get all the correct meals at a decent time, if that makes sense. So is there any tips on this? Do you prep a lot? Is this a good idea? So with a busy life, I think planning and preparation can certainly help you. That's for sure. So for example, if you know you're going to be busy at certain times of the day, this is when it will be really useful to plan around that so that you can make as better choices as possible to aid you in your goals, for example. So I know you've asked if I prep a lot, like I don't necessarily prep that much because the timings of my days just work around, you know, I can work around these things. But if I'm going to have a very busy day where I'm not gonna be at home when COVID's over and done with, I will kind of plan snacks or I'll plan where I'll get my food whilst I'm out and about and I'll have a rough plan in my head as to what kind of thing I'll grab. So for example, right now I'm in my deficit, so I'm trying to lose body fat. So I know if I'm out and about and there's a Sainsbury's local nearby, I know I can pick up a, a salad and a chicken box and put them together and I, you know, it, it ticks the boxes for me, my goal and my taste buds. What you could do is actually, if you prep meals at home, if you have time at home, an hour or so, where you can actually prep one or two set meals that you don't mind eating repeatedly for a couple of days, if you, that one hour there probably saves you time in the long run. 
you know, i.e. if you just have to reheat something rather than cook it again from scratch, you're saving that time there. So that one hour of effort at whatever time suits you will likely save you time in the future. So if prep works for you like that, if you don't like cooking and preparing things, then maybe look at kind of what ready meals or very easy cooks you can get. So like pre-cut veg, you know, the supermarkets have lots of ready meals that are there now that actually aren't so bad. And if you, like I say, if we understand this nutrition principle in the sense of looking at the calories and the, what it contains and making sure that fits your goals, then they're, they're good options. So that could be an idea as well. Yeah, so a lot of it just comes down to planning and appreciating these things. And then when it comes, if you're out and about making the decisions, just try and think about the decisions you're making when you're in the shop, for example. Don't just buy because you're hungry and try and, like I say, a bit like the pause thing, pause and go, hold on, does this really fit my goal? Is this really what I want? And then make your decision from there. So hopefully that kind of helps in that respect, Laura. Then I had Sam who's asked, how many times a week would you say to do cardio? I prefer resistance work, but I'll throw in a run each week for my heart and lungs uh, because I think I should. I think having an element of both cardiovascular and resistance training is definitely for, for us that want to train for health and you know keep ourselves healthy, get stronger through life. I think having aspects of both is really important. So if you do have your preference for resistance training, you know, make that the majority of your training. If that's what you enjoy, that's what you like doing, that's certainly then biased towards that. But I do agree in the sense of, I think having some cardiovascular training in there will be really useful, uh, like you say, for the heart and the lungs health. So if running is your mode of cardio, then that's cool. Once a week is fine. Um, you know, providing you're being relatively active day to day with like your neat stuff, so that walking around, Gen, you know just being mobile day to day you'll be all right you don't have to necessarily push the the heart and lungs too much more uh if there's any time that you want to increase your fitness then hey maybe you'll have to do more than you know your aerobic fitness sorry maybe you'll have to do more than one session per week to do that but it depends on your goals but i think one session a week is is plenty alongside your resistance training if that's what suits your lifestyle and and your fitness levels that you're at and things like that. So I think that'll be all right. So the next one I have is, it's about calorie deficits versus eating according to your exercise because this person in particular has heard some fitness experts advocate fueling exercise days and maintaining on rest days. For example, eating less carbs on your rest days. And people don't necessarily believe in calorie counting or continually weighing yourself. Some are even saying to ditch the scales completely. So what are my thoughts? So there's quite a layered a layered question here. But I think when it comes to eating more calories, I think it's essentially saying, should I eat more carbohydrates on the days that I train versus the days that I don't? That is a tactic that you could use. It's not the only tactic. And it depends on the goals again. So if you're looking to lose weight, for example, then realistically we need to be looking at maintaining that calorie deficit. So if that means that on days you exercise because you feel like you fuel your workouts better by having carbohydrates on those days, have carbohydrates on those days. 
But that's not to say that you can't have a good workout because you've not had many carbohydrates in one day, for example. So I think when we look at it from a weight loss perspective, that's the calorie deficit's the overriding thing. How you stick to your calorie deficit can be very varied. There's no magic that happens by having less carbs on a rest day, for example, basically. Um, just because you have more carbs and don't do a training session won't necessarily mean you're going to put on body fat, especially if you're maintaining that calorie deficit. If you're maintaining that calorie deficit, then you will be in a state where your body will be losing body fat and weight. So I wouldn't get too roped up on that, for example. Calorie counting itself is a tool it can be a very useful tool for raising your awareness into how many calories you're having per day, for example. Uh, it can raise your awareness as to kind of the makeup of your meals. So you may not be aware that you're having more fatty foods than protein and carbohydrates and vegetables, for example, which is why meals may be more calories than you were anticipating, for example. But it's not the only way, you know, we can we can look at your plate visually. Do you have kind of a quarter of your plate as protein, a quarter of it as carbohydrate, and maybe half the plate as vegetables? We can build, we can do things visually and have an idea. So again, calorie counting in itself is not bad, but for some people they won't like it because of the numbers. Some people like it because of the numbers. If you can remove the emotions from these numbers, it's a really good tool. To, especially when trying to lose weight, because you can be slightly more accurate in knowing what you're having day to day. But again, realistically, if we're losing weight and losing body fat, whether or not you're tracking probably isn't that important towards it. It's more so if you think you're eating the right things, but you're not tracking and you're not losing weight, then it might be a good idea to pay slightly more attention uh, again, weighing yourself, again, there is some research to suggest that those that weigh daily can adhere slightly better to their weight loss goals. But also, if you're someone that is emotionally attached to the numbers on the scales, then maybe it might not be until you can step over that psychological hurdle. You know, because if the, the number on the scales triggers you in some way for a, a negative emotional response that leads on to more negative things towards the goal, then it's obviously not a fabulous idea to be doing that. To ditch them all together, yeah, some people do. Some people, you can look at yourself, right? There's so many other markers of progress. You can look at yourself physically. That's why progress photos are really cool. So, you, you know, if you took your photos every month, you can see how you're changing physically. You can look at your performance in the gym your strength, so how strong are you in comparison to months before? Have you got better technique in the exercises that you're doing? That's a progress marker, you know, because you, if you're starting your journey, you could be, you know, not very good at doing your squats, for example, then as you continue to practice, you can get better and better and better. That's progress. Uh, how many reps are you doing, for example, if you're only doing 10 body weight lunges and then a month down the line, you're doing 20 body weight lunges. That's progress. So I suppose anyone that talks in black and white with these things, saying you should, you should not, they're not taking into account necessarily all of the factors. They just may have their bias towards these things. So I don't necessarily have a bias personally towards anything because it completely depends on the person in front of me, their preferences, 
the way they work around things. So that would be, yeah, so they're my lines of thoughts on those, like I say. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't, there's plenty of other things we can be doing. The next question I have is around, so I'm adjusting it slightly, but essentially this person feels like their fitness cardiovascularly has reached a point where it's not improving that much more and they were wondering whether resistance training could help them almost unlock the next level of their cardiovascular training. So this is quite interesting because strength training, there's a lot of potential here. Um, It's been a while since I've read any research around this area of late. So I'm going to speak in potentials and I think it'd be a cool thing to explore. Maybe I'll explore it and uh, come back in the future as well. But if we look at the theory, essentially strength training might be able to improve your capacity for aerobic stuff because potentially if you become stronger, it could allow your body to kind of output more, for example. So you'll see sprinters, for example, they do a lot of weight training, obviously in their legs, because the more powerful they can be, the faster they can run. Marathon runners will also do their strength training as well because the stronger their muscles can be, then the more, I suppose, they can can more repeatedly take steps and take the force of the ground every time they land and stuff. So I think with, with extra strength comes extra almost, I want to say protection around the joints, which will allow for more to be done. So I think there's some potential in there. And maybe then by being able to do more or produce more or work slightly you know, harder or more powerfully, maybe that could have some potential ramifications for how, work, how hard your heart and lungs could potentially work. So again, so that, you know, it's definitely a good idea to have the resistance training in and try and progress that even with cardiovascular fitness goals. Um, Well then, I I suppose then there's other factors of maybe age, um, how kind of where your existing lung capacity is at, for example, where your existing heart capacity is at in terms of, you know, can it improve on how many beats per minute or how much blood it can pump around the body per pump? So if you're someone with low capacities to begin with, maybe you have more scope for increase. But for those that may already be fitter and have been working on this for quite a while, maybe the capacity is less, but it doesn't, I don't know whether it would be completely done, for example. So yeah, so like I say, there's a lot of potential there. I think, what was the other note? I made a note. I think also then, yeah, so the last point on this I have is that with increase in strength, and the ability to do things with your body, you potentially could then choose more difficult variations of whatever cardiovascular activity you're doing. Um, So say, for example, if you're someone that's only jogged, for example, then maybe you become strong enough to handle sprints or a faster paced jog, for example, which then may increase the difficulty, for example. So you can either work harder in the same amount of time or you could potentially work at the same level of effort for longer. Um, again, which is kind of more markers of progress and 
increases in potential fitness. So I know it's a little bit airy-fairy and there's a lot of potential in there, but they're my logical kind of trying to think about these things in a logical way as an answer to those. So hopefully that at least covers. Like I say, if I have a look at these, I'll uh, be interesting to come back and see if there's anything in that as we go along. I believe the last question I have is essentially around struggling to lose weight, sticking to a certain number of calories that in theory should result in weight loss, but they're not seeing it. And also around struggling to fit in food around training as well because of work, training, traveling to training. Again, multiple layers. The theory would have it with weight loss is if you're sticking to your calorie deficit, then whatever your calorie deficit would be, then in theory the body should proceed with weight loss and body fat loss. In healthy individuals, that's very much the case most of the time. I think there's a couple of health conditions out there that will make this more difficult. Um, but I'm not a doctor, so I don't know these things. So it's just more so there's something to be aware of, but it's not something I can particularly comment on. But I think sometimes what happens, so I can only really speak from a, from, you know, a healthy individual's position, uh, because I don't know too much about different medical conditions in that sense, which is fine to admit, like I say, I'm not a doctor. But if we're, you know, if we're talking about normal individuals that may not necessarily have health conditions, I don't know whether this person does or doesn't, for example. So we'll go on the assumption that they're healthy. We can get wrapped up in this where we think we're having a certain amount. And this is where tracking can be very useful. If you're not sure because you haven't tracked or you haven't like really written down everything we're having, then maybe starting there could be a good idea. So we can have a, a more accurate idea of how many calories we're having. And it's then also a case of tracking really as accurately as possible. So it's not, you know, and I've seen this with clients so many times. We are, we talk about tracking, we decide it's going to happen, but then they'll do, they'll log all the stuff they perceive as good and then go, oh, well, I had a takeaway, so I didn't track it. That takeaway in itself, for example, could negate all of the deficit that they've created in the week, depending on how large their takeaway calorie has gone on top of that day's worth of food as well. Because typically when it comes to a takeaway, people still have breakfast, lunch, dinner, or breakfast, lunch, snacks, drinks. Then they have the takeaway as well. So if that whole day's worth of food comes to four or five thousand calories, depending on what takeaway choice they've had and the choices they've made throughout the day, then it's so hard to know why you may not be losing weight if you've not tracked it or something like that. So if you if you do or if you don't take note of the things you perceive as bad because you think they're bad, is you know, you don't want to admit you've had it to a trainer or someone that's looking, then that can make things really difficult. And sometimes they're like the hidden, the hidden calories that are going under the radar. But naturally, obviously, if you're taking those things into account, you'll have a much more accurate account of how many calories you've been having through the week every day, for example. Then we can consider, so if that's the case, we can then consider the accuracy of the tracking, taking into account, have you weighed the food out, okay, rather than just guesstimating by going, okay, I think that's 100 grams, I think that's 200 grams. 
Have you actually put it on the weighing scales and made sure how much that is? If we're doing that for everything, that's a kind of a good way of increasing the accuracy of the tracking. Then we need to think about, have you tracked the right form of the food? Because weighing foods raw versus cooked will give you two different weights for many, many foods. And it depends on the packet of whatever you've scanned, for example. So, and the, you may or may not know this, but like if you look chicken, raw chicken is, is quite a good example of this. There's many shops will give you the calorific details of the raw food, but some of it, some of the other shops will give you the calorific nutritional information of cooked chicken. And if you've ever put them side by side, you'll realise they're quite different. 100 grams of cooked will be very different to 100 grams raw. Because I think from my experience, chicken gets a bit lighter as you cook it. So the raw weight will always be more than the, the cooked. Well, not always, but it might work. In my experience, it has always been that way. So there's some different layers in tracking that may help. And then you may, again, you may then have a picture of going, oh, okay, well, actually, I didn't realise these things. So now I've adjusted them and now I've realised I've actually been eating more calories than I thought I was. We've also then got more hidden calories in the idea in the sense of are you tracking the oils, the sprays, the spices, the sauces, condiments? They all contribute. Drinks as well, alcohol especially. Again, that one glass of wine, are you taking that into account? Are you taking into account the the juices, the coffees you buy when you're out at work? What kind of coffees are you buying? So you can see there's a lot to be considering when it comes to those things. Um, so again, it becomes very, very uh, individual in that sense when it comes to the nutrition side of things. Likewise, the other aspect of this is obviously training and training multiple times a week, lots of times a week and I think sometimes we can overestimate how many calories are being burned in the sessions because of things like Fitbits and Apple Watches and your perception of how hard you're working versus how many calories your body is actually burning. Um, and I think there's a huge array of accuracy with these watches, for example. You know, some of these watches can be a couple of hundred percent out in versus what your body has actually burnt calorifically. So for example, you could do a 20 minute workout, your watch has told you you've burnt 300 calories. Realistically, your body may well have only burnt 100, for example, which means there's a discrepancy there of a couple hundred of calories. And if you're then accounting for these extra couple hundred within your in nutrition, you may well be eating over a couple hundred of calories. Which, you know, if you stack those up over the days, if you're a couple hundred calories over every day, then actually you're, you're reducing your chances of being in a deficit. Very hard to give concrete numbers on this, though. Again, it's all going to be very individual. Our, all of our bodies work completely differently. Our watches work differently. Different brands work differently, etc., etc., etc. So, again, needs to be slightly more personalised in that sense, too. Yeah, that's that's all the questions I have from the, the challenge. So that's cool. 